Good morning. So I want to give you several pieces of good news. Um, you know that, that Holly, Hudley and I taught here together last week, and I have convinced her uh, to co-teach with me on a regular basis. And our next time together will be uh, October the 20th. Holly's working on a PhD in cosmology so that, that um, she can bring that kind of uh, insight and enlightenment to uh, these times together. Second of all, the second thing I want to say is that uh, during November, at the 11 o'clock service time, uh, we're, those of you who want to and those from the 945 service who want to are going to convene in here for four Sundays. And the four Sundays will be the first two we're going to look at the movie American Heretic. And then the next two Sundays we might have to charge admission for because Matt Russell, who's sitting here today, and I are going to facilitate a discussion of the American Heretics movie, uh, if we can stop uh, playing and fighting with each other long enough <laughs> to do that. I love Matt. We have such a great time together. That's going to be really something to look forward to, uh, that, that movie and the discussion of it. And I also want to reconfirm, and these are in the announcement slides that you can see uh, during the gathering time. We have Michael Morewood confirmed for May the 20th. And uh, we also have Jackie Lewis, who is public theologian on a uh, very exciting church in Manhattan who is going to be here uh, next year. So how are you doing? You doing okay? Uh, somebody came up to me after 945 service today and said, I want to thank you for putting me on to uh, Jim Hollis's book, Living the Examined Life. And I'm putting you onto it again, just reminding you that if you ever wonder about what to do with your head space during your spiritual practice time, that would be a time. Also, uh, be a book to read. Also, if you don't get the emails of this for this class, there is a preview that goes out every Friday morning and a summary including the text that I pretend to speak from that goes out... <laughs> On Tuesday morning, along with links to the video for this and uh, all the, the slides and the audio and, and everything. So usually at this time, I say hello to the pajama people. Pajama people are those who stay at home and eat pancakes while this class is live streamed, which works well for those in this time zone. But last Sunday, someone watched from just south of Florence, Italy, and they said that it was wine and cheese time there. <laughs> so we're expanding to say hello to the pajama people and hello to the wine and cheese people. I'm glad that you are here, and thanks to everybody that makes this possible. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So people often ask me, where do you get the ideas and information that you present in ordinary life? And I have been reluctant to answer that question because if I were to do so, first of all, no one would believe me. 
And, and second of all, you would then want to actually see the source. But the pressure has been such that I'm going to share that with you today among trying to answer some other questions. So where does this material come from? When I graduated from Hogwarts, <laughs> see, I told you, I told you. Hagrid gave me a book, and he said, Bill, this is years ago. He said, Bill, someday, I, en I envision you someday standing before a group of people speaking, and some of them may even be wearing pajamas. <laughs> and if you ever have doubts about what to teach or say, this book is full of hot ideas. <laughs> And you know, it just stuff just seemed to pop out at me from it. And that's where I get the ideas. Oh Lord. You cannot have that book. So it was just a smidgen over five years ago, September the second, two thousand fourteen to be exact when I first heard Ilya Delio at a Richard Rohr conference. I had never heard of her. Sherry, my son, and I had gone to this Rohr conference because it's just what we do. We were not too keen on the keynote speaker that year, but we decided to stay and hear this woman who was gonna speak. I'd never heard of her. Uh, she's a very established, a uh, well-recognized published person. She has author, authored 14 books, teaches at Georgetown University. And if you had asked me to describe her after that initial encounter, I would have said she's probably eight feet tall <laughs> because that was the impact that she had had on me. Um, actually, she is physically very small. And, and those of you who have been attending these times for a year will testify that um, I had a different kind of energy when I came back from hearing Ilya. Um, she didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. Like, I don't tell you anything you don't already know. All right. But she put it in language that was accessible. And... and um, some of you will remember my quoting her understanding of the cosmos and, say, and her saying that her understanding of the cosmos was the same as her understanding of God, that it was expanding, that it was creative, that the cosmos and we are entangled and that we are evolving. So she infected me, she affected me in my teaching, and I am forever grateful that we were able to bring her here to speak. Now twice, once here and once at Rothko Chapel. And she grounded my conviction, and even more than that when it comes to religion and theology, that, that we have to rethink everything from the ground up. And because my teachings have reflected and amplified on the kinds of things coming from the new uh, learnings that we are getting about this field of energy in which we live, that 
lives in us that we are part of and dependent on and is dependent on us. I have had a multiple number of comments from you since then about things that go on in here. Um, and, and I said, oh, I'm going to get to that someday. I'm going to talk about that someday. These are not all the comments, but they kind of summarize them. One is, you have ruined big church for me. <laughs> for those of you who don't have children, you know that parents uh, refer to the main liturgy that goes on in the cathedral across the plaza as big church because the little kids get taken out for their own kind of time during um, that lengthy liturgy. Another comment that I get in one way or another is, how can you teach what you teach and then go across the plaza and be involved in the worship service there? Well, that's about all we have time for today. So, <laughs> so I, you know, to, to be honest, over the years, I've gotten multitude of responses about my being part of what Michael Morewood refers to as middle management of the church. And actually, when I'm not here or, and am out there somewhere and people don't know what I do, I try to keep my identity as a clergy or being part of the church a secret because it just shuts so many people down. For one thing, you quit hearing really good jokes. Um, people people avoid, have a tendency to avoid people they think are clergy or they expect to have some sort of inside track to the sacred, you know. I've been called father and padre by people. I'm not part of that tradition where that happens, but people just fall into that sort of thing. So I've gotten two responses over the years. They use exactly the same words, but they reflect such different stances toward religion. One comes from those who, for whatever reason, have had it with organized religion. And we could go into all those reasons, but that's not for today. But they say in one way or another, you don't believe all that stuff, do you? That's one response. And then the other response comes from those who I call defenders of the faith. And they say, you believe all that stuff, don't you? <laughs> Same words, but... Different inflection in the question, different order of the words. So today I'm going to try to say some things in response to these questions. And I want to be clear up front that I am not trying to sell you anything. Um, except for a very few important matters. All I want to do in here is play my music. And I hope you enjoy it. It's like when you go to the symphony and, and you, or a rock concert. The musicians don't really have anything to sell you. Among the few things I do want to persuade you to embrace are having a daily spiritual practice and practicing justice and compassion. Also, this talk is not a polemic. I don't want to come across argumentative. And I don't want to come across defensive. So I want to speak to four things briefly. 
Actually, it's going to take a long time, but I want to talk about tradition. I want to talk about ritual. I want to talk about myth. And I want to talk about meaning. Now, graduate seminars could be devoted to any of these topics. Indeed, volumes have been written about all of them. And, and though I have made every effort to be concise, I couldn't fit all this into one talk. So it's going to be two. I hope you come back next week. Today I'm going to touch on, on tradition and ritual and next, next week on uh, myth, including the use of language and, and, and meaning. And then after this, we can return to any of this. We just see how it goes. And, and I'm clear that all of these topics are touchy for some people. Some people cannot stand religious tradition. They cannot wait to get away from it. They don't want anything to do with it. And as I said, implied, on the other hand, some people are terrified that you're going to say something that will mess with what they hold to be very precious. So let's begin. The word tradition simply means to have something that you hand to somebody else. That's the literal meaning of the word, like passing the baton in a, in a race, in a relay race. And I want to state what should be obvious, but for many it is not, and, and that is that all religions on the planet, I don't care where you go, what it is, all religions on the planet are human constructs. They, were hum they didn't come down from Mount Olympus, they didn't come down from Moses, they didn't come down from a sky god. People invented every religion. What I was taught in seminary is that all living religious traditions, wherever they are found, share some things in common. Number one is that they are human constructions. They are things that people, human beings, our ancestors, put together in response to their experience of the sacred. And they use the language and symbols of the culture in which they were created. They also embody and reflect what uh, various scholars refer to as the perennial tradition something that you can find all the way back, and they also embrace aesthetic traditions. So they're full of symbolism and, and metaphors and poetry and that sort of thing. And they create communities of both practice and, and transformation. This is true of all living religions. Now, whether you like this or not, agree with this or not, is this so? You this clear? This is where kind of the how religions get get created. Now, we we can look back now on some of the religious practices that have been both practiced and believed, and we look through our filters, the filter of our culture, and we say, "Good Lord, how could they have believed such?" And perhaps a hundred years from now. People will look back on what we do with the same kind of, gee, money, do you believe they did that? I mean, we, we right now, we know enough to know that there is no sky god that said, you should kill virgins to make me happy. Or you should kill your children to make me happy. 
Or you should slaughter a cow to make me happy. The goat, now that's another thing, but that's a... <laughs> As I have said before, God did not wait until there were Baptists in Tennessee to say something. God, the, the, the word that we use for God, which we'll talk about sometime, has been a creative sacred divine presence from the beginning. If you ask me if I am washed in the blood of the lamb, that has no meaning for me because it has no cultural reference to me. It may have had profound cultural reference to a Jew who was living in the third century B.C. or at the time of Jesus. Now, there is growing evidence that ever since the evolution of beings who were able to be self-reflective, there's been some form of religious ritual. And the oldest that we have goes back to burial customs, and we'll come back to those at some time. Um, by the way, I want to say that when it comes to both tradition and ritual, Christians of whatever stripe are absolutely the new kid on the block. We're babies when it comes to religious tradition. Stonehenge was co completed around 3100 BC. That's a long time ago. Um, a language capable of being written is 3000 BC. This is where we have the earliest creation story, which is not what you see in, in Genesis. The, the oldest surviving religious texts come from around 2500 BC. The epic called Gilgamesh, which is a, a poem likely meaning our ancestor hero is from tw about 2100 BC. The, the oldest Hindu writings come from around uh, 1700 BC. The earliest monotheistic religion is Egyptian, not Jewish. The scholars now say that the oldest Jewish writings go back to around the 6th century B.C. So Christianity is based on a division that occurred in Judaism over the understanding or the misunderstanding of Jesus and his teaching. And just so, it's just barely 2,000 years old. It's just a baby. I remember um, back in the 60s, I co-led with a very radical rabbi a uh, Seder meal as part of a Christian gathering, and it was a huge success. I did the English, and he did the Hebrew. It was a wonderful experience. I mean, we had several hundred people there. It was a, a great experience, and after it was over, I was exclaiming to him how much I loved what we had done. And I said, can we do it again next year? Let's do it again next year. Next year, we'll do it differently. And uh, <laughs> like I said, he was as radical as they come. And he looked at me and said, no, we won't. We've been doing it this way for 4,000 years. So though Judaism is a tradition, there are a lot of ways of being Jewish. I've got a number of Jewish friends who are real clear with me. They are secular Jews. Now, what they mean by that is they don't like religion either. They don't go to synagogue, but they identify as being, as being Jewish. 
So among the Jewish population, you have Orthodox, Hasidic, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionists, Renewal, Humanistic groups of Jews. A uh, man who in this city has a high level of visibility is Sam Karf. I've known Sam ever since I've been in Houston. And uh, he's in the Orthodox tradition. And it was, by the way, not, Sam was not the rabbi, but it was from Sam that we got the Haggadah, the order of the Seder to use in that particular meal. Christianity is in the Jewish tradition and is more splintered than any religious group on the planet. There are two main divisions of Christianity. There's the Eastern and the Western division, and these are usually divided into Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Oriental Orthodox, Assyrian, and then all of these are splintered into numerous groups. There are an estimated 2.5 billion people who call themselves Christian, and at last count, there were about 30,000 different Protestant denominations. There are more than 200 different kinds of Baptist. We're real good at splitting up. So you know that the Methodist tradition grew out of the Anglican tradition, which grew out of the Roman Catholic tradition, which grew out of a forced unification of various developing early Jesus follower groups, which grew out of a Jewish religion at the time of Jesus, which had already splintered into groups like the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. How do you make sense of any of this? In every tradition, in, in every religion, there is an important emphasis made on lineage. And uh, in Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, this is very, very important. I have a devout Buddhist friend who has a teacher, who had a teacher, who had a teacher, who had a teacher, and on and on and on. It goes all the way back to Buddha. Now, you can raise an eyebrow about that. You can scoff about that. But ordained Methodist clergy in the United States can show that they were ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone, and this goes all the way back to either Francis Asbury or Thomas Coke, who were commissioned by John Wesley to ordain people in the newly found Methodist church in, in the colonies. You know, the word Methodist is originally a divisive term. A derisive term. <laughs> Probably divisive, too. <laughs> it, it, was a deri it, was, it was a term of mockery. And I, when I transferred my ordination into the United Methodist Church, um, <clears throat> I, I realized that Mr. Wesley was a, was a pretty disturbed person. I mean, anybody who writes in his journal got up at 6.07 has got trouble, right? <laughs> and um, John and his brother Charles started a study group inside the Church of England that soon came to be called those people who call themselves Methodists. Now, the word Methodist um, is, is um, a better term than what they were originally derisively called, which was the Holiness Club. Where do you go to church? Oh, the Holiness Club down on Main Street. 
Wikipedia tells me that there are, there are 24 different kinds of Methodists. Now, this sort of stuff may bore you senseless, but in my commitment to uh, contribute to religious literacy, I wanted you to know about this. Because no matter how convoluted or how much of a puzzle it may seem, every religious institution, now there are exceptions that we'll talk about, that calls itself church, even those that split over whether to get a new chandelier or not, among those who don't know how to spell chandelier, can trace its roots back and back and back and back. Now, that's, that's an important thing to know about tradition. Now, I am not unmindful that where we're standing at the moment has a huge psychological component. I'm not dealing with that today. I'll just raise the question for your own reflection. How come you happen to be here today? What were the circumstances, both external and internal, that led you to decide to be right here, right now? Traditions give rise to communities and persons of meaning. And they help people answer the question, why are you here? Actually, re religious tradition helps people answer the question, what are we to do and who are we? But why are you here? Or as my spiritual teacher from years ago, who was a Roman Catholic Buddhist, put it, what did you take birth for? Now, the most important thing I want to say about tradition before moving to ritual is that it implies conservatism. But tradition is not just holding on to the past. It is continuing the spirit of the past, its ideals and values, but just like the past, it does so in the language and symbols of today. That makes sense? So I am not prone to ask you, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Though that would have been something that three generations ago, a Sunday school teacher might ask. Okay? What links us to the past is the sense of identity that that tradition seeks to preserve. Well, you say, if that's the case, why are we still using some of that language and some of those symbols and some of those practices? Ritual. Now, since we know what we know about the cosmos, why are we, I'm speaking specifically about the liturgy now at St. Paul's, still using a creed that was formulated in the 4th century? If it is true, and if you truly believe that the Bible is a humanly constructed document, why do we say the word of the Lord and thanks be to God after the lectionary readings? You don't believe that stuff, do you? Or you do believe that stuff, don't you? Now, I personally would change some of the language of the liturgy. After reading from the Bible, I would say something like, <clears throat> a reading from our tradition. 
Um, I think for the most part, we in our liturgy across the way avoid the truly cringeworthy hymns, though we have some in the hymnal. Seriously. Regardless of the religious tradition you choose to be part of, you're going to find a lot to criticize. However, there's that most valuable theological word, however. One of the values of both tradition and a tradition-informed ritual is that it keeps us from cobbling together whatever we want to just so we'll feel good. Now, though I'm sure this has happened since the beginning of religions all over the globe, religious people in the United States have mastered this art. So some put together a spirituality that's like a patchwork quilt, a little bit of what the church has taught, a little bit of what the culture teaches, a little bit of what we thought we heard, a little bit of what we would like to hear. And you can find many expressions of that in uh, American culture. Perhaps the most widely, wildly successful, though it's not the only one, is right here in Houston uh, with Joel Osteen at Lakewood. Uh, and I'll say more about that. The primary focus of Lakewood is making people feel good, making people happy, making people feel successful, so much so that there is not a cross in that church, not a Christian symbol in that church. And when Joel Osteen's father was asked about that, he said, well, I don't want to bring anybody down and make them feel bad. Now, I'm not being critical of that. I'm not being critical of Lakewood. I think if you go to Lakewood, please don't, but if you do, <laughs> you're going to get some good advice about living. You will feel better about yourself. And if you follow Joel's advice, your life will be better, truly. But without the challenge of both a tradition and a ritual, it's easy for faith to, come, to become a matter of making sure we feel good so that we can hold our discomfort and pain and misfortune out there somewhere. Prayer becomes a matter of getting God to set things right rather than the person simply nurturing their relationship with sacred creating presence. One of the worst things we can do in our lives is base our living on how we feel. Now, religious institutions are slower uh, to change than ocean liners. When... Um, I first started participating in the liturgy here back in the 80s. There was a cartoon on the court board in the sacristy that remained there until that space was remodeled. And, and though this is not it, I couldn't find it. Uh, somebody sadly threw it away. This is very close to it. A clergyman is being led to the hangman's gallows. And uh, somebody says, what did you do wrong? And he said, I made a change in the order of service. There it is. I don't agree with the, what's in the Methodist Book of Discipline about homosexual people at all. But if I kept that from allowing me to be ordained a clergy in the United Methodist Church, two things would have resulted. Number one, 
I would have not had all these years with you. And number two, I would not be able to lend my voice to all those in the Methodist church who are going for change over that issue. I don't know if you notice it or not, but every Sunday in the announcement slides is one that says, Ordinary Life is part of the Reconciling Ministries Network. Thank God for Jim Bankston who paved the way for that at such a courageous cost and won him an immense amount of respect and integrity for what he did. I'd like to be part of that. Years ago, I asked a buddy of mine if he would... Uh, come to church. He said, what do you do? We were playing racquetball or something. I said, I I'm, uh, teach this great class at St. Paul's, and then I'm in worship service usually. Then it was usually, now it's all the time. And uh, I said, please come. I'd like for you to come. And he said, well, I might come to class. I don't think I'll come to church. Why not? It's a beautiful place. He said, yeah, no, I've been to a wedding or funeral there, but I don't care for worship. Why not? And he said, well, you have to get up and sit down. You have to get up and you sit down. You have to get up and sit down. <laughs> There was a graduate student at Rice University who did a study, and this is years ago, about why people attend this church. And that student came up with 27 discreetly different reasons that people attend. Now, there are just as likely as many reasons why people don't attend. I think most people probably could not tell you why our worship service is structured the way it is. Or any church service, that, uh, that is, as far as the Catholic lineage is concerned. The very first worship liturgy recorded is from the second century. The middle of the second century. The very first. Our worship service is patterned on that one. That liturgy, which was conducted in a house church, a small gathering of people, was taken from the Jewish synagogue. And those people who followed Jesus were Jews. The Jews were the ones who came up with the liturgical year, not Christians. Christians just <clears throat> embellished it, stole it is another word, reinterpreted it. I doubt you that there are one in a thousand, there is one in a thousand people who could tell you what I'm about to share with you. The Christian Gospels, I call them the Jesus narratives, are structured to follow the Jewish liturgical year. This is a growing insight among biblical scholars, and you can read about it in Shelby's Palm's writings. They're structured to, it makes perfect sense once you, once you see it, it's like, you know, one of those optical illusions that once you see, you oh, wow, why didn't I see that before? Jesus' followers were Jews. After his death, and they experienced new community, they went back into the synagogue. It was just a Jewish thing to do, to tell their stories, their memoirs that was referred to in that first worship service, in light of the Jewish scriptures that they were going through in their liturgical year. And those stories, it took decades, began to be shaped in light of that liturgy. Jews are, uh, are, are geniuses when it comes to liturgy. The Seder meal is a genius construction. They knew the importance of ritual. 
And so over the centuries, they experienced these times and places that were sacred to them, where they thought they most clearly experienced the holy, and they institutionalized them. We call them sacraments, sacred places. And you know in your heart what these things are, because when they occur, you're touched in ways that your rational mind doesn't compute. Most of you, if you go to a wedding, during the wedding you may weep and you won't know why. You don't even have to know the couple. There's just something about that that touches something deep within our psyches. And these other moments as well, when somebody dies, when somebody comes to a major critical turn in their, in, in, in their life. I love this. Somebody sent me this as a cartoon. I mean, it's a Photoshop about a baby being baptized. He says, so today in church, a guy in a dress tried to drown me. And I kid you not, my family just stood there taking pictures. <laughs> I love that. I just, 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 just. Our lives are full of rituals. Verbal, physical. You know, if you go somewhere in Italy, Spain, France, and, and somewhere where you don't know the language, and you decide to go to uh, a Roman Catholic mass, the whole thing is going to sound like mumbo-jumbo. As a matter of fact, the phrase that magicians use, hocus-pocus, comes from the institution of the mass. Anyway. <laughs> But as I said, I assure you that relatively speaking, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Zen practitioners, some Aboriginal people, they're way ahead of us. And the liturgy, in the liturgies, in these rituals, just like in a Japanese tea ceremony, every movement is supposed to have meaning. Now, I'm grateful that Richard Rohr decided to stay in the institution. I'm grateful that Ilya Delio decided to stay in the institution and Jackie Lewis, as well as Joan Chittister, as well as Sister and Simone Campbell, the nun on the bus. You know, in, in Buddhism, if you want to become a Buddhist and be recognized as such, they will ask you to take three vows. You will be asked to take a refuge in Buddha, the teachings of Buddha, and the community that's formed by those teachings. They're referred to as refuge vows. It's certainly true in the Jewish religion. If you wanted to identify as a Jew, you had to follow the laws, which came from Moses, and you had to participate in the community. Belonging was very important for the Jews, still is. In the early Jesus movement, the followers of Jesus who for good or ill became institutionalized Christianity, they took refuge. They took refuge in Jesus. They took refuge in the teachings of Jesus, allowing their lives to be shaped by these teachings, and they banded together in groups of love and support. Now, it's much more complicated than I'm about to say, but Christianity in the United States kind of took a different flavor from this. The, the biggest aspect of this is that the Christian movement in the United States became individualized. In, in the United States, this has been a combination of an emphasis on saving souls. Are you going to heaven when you die? 
That's the big thing that matters in religion, you know. Nothing else. And, 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 and it's also been um, influenced by the sacred doctrine in the United States of rugged individualism. So in doing so, the church has subtly communicated the message that, you know, you don't really have to do anything to be Christian. Just easy. Just come on, walk down the aisle, say yes. And, and of course, give us your money. But there's virtually no importance in most Christian gatherings about the importance of growth in headspace and heart space and hand space. I mean, you'd be lucky to find a spiritual teacher who emphasizes having a spiritual practice. <laughs> now, here's the deal. You say, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. But you take refuge and stuff all the time. Device, a person, or if that person doesn't work, another person. Social media, entertainment, a drink, whatever. My point is that there are resources of and for transformation in religious tradition and in rituals. Knowing that they are human constructs, I encourage you to pick one. And when you get on a path, stick with it. A professor of mine at Harvard said, it is better to dig one well 60 feet deep than six wells 10 feet deep. So pick one. Knowing all the flaws and all the this and that, let it speak to you. Now, I know uh, there are exceptions to what I am about to say. Uh, one exception would be if someday I walked in that cathedral and they had those big screens up. <laughs> That's my last Sunday here. That's it. I ain't coming back. I ain't coming back. <laughs> but as far as I can say, I am here to stay as far, and this is a line I got from my dad. They carry me out. Being religious and taking on the community of people along the way is something like being married. It's a long time after the vows are taken and, and you realize, good Lord. What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> but it's too late then. The vows have been taken, and we got to learn to live with the things that we now consider the faults and failings of our partner. And something that we easily forget, they got to learn to live with ours. So next week, I'm going to come back and talk about language, myth, and meaning. Again, I've not been trying to sell you on a thing today. But as your spiritual teacher, at least for this time that we're together, I want to do what I am able so that when it is time for us to die, we will not discover that we have not lived. I gave this talk today a title of Walking in Bigger Shoes. Now, I don't think this is a, what I'm about to say is original with me, but many years ago, I realized that the religion that was being rejected by many people, they said, I don't want any part of that, I don't want any part of God, nothing, is a religion and an understanding of God that they had gotten in childhood. And it had gotten arrested at about the eighth grade. 
it would be ridiculous to still be wearing clothes you wore in the eighth grade. And then in graduate school, 1959 to be exact, I encountered Carl Jung, one of the most altering, life-altering encounters of my life. And Jung said that we all walk in shoes that are too small. We limit ourselves and our passions to fit some expected role or some inherited teaching. And walking in shoes that are too small creates a disconnect between our true selves, between each other, between tradition, between other people. I find in the work I do with others and in the life I lead for myself that we all often experience that we're often not big enough to deal with the world or we're insufficient or that the world is too big for us, it's overwhelming. And I know that all religion, certainly the Christian religion, is flawed and has a profoundly unimpressive historical records in some places. I also know that the church that changed its heart on, say, an issue like slavery is not two churches. It's the same church. The church that freed itself from slavery had received a faith that had enough depth and resource to put its own history into question and to demand a new form of truthfulness. And that's what's happening now with the issue of homosexuality. And that's what's happening now with issues like injustice and racial equality. And my faith is that we will have the courage of our convictions, whether we can acknowledge them now or not. I believe in the future. That's faith in evolution. Now, hang on. Uh, it gets even more paradoxical. It is not we who manage the truth that our institutions hold. It's the truth that our institutions hold that seeks to transform us. We don't manage as much as we respond to the sacred now, when you take off the clothes you wore in the eighth grade, you're going to have to put something on. That's the law. <laughs> What's it going to be? There is a wonderful Jungian poet, uh, analyst, author um, named Marion Woodman. I love her stuff. But she just writes so well about the individual and the, and the collective. And, and, and she has a poem that... I like to read a lot, it says, if you travel far enough, one day you will recognize yourself coming down the road to meet you. And you will say yes. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.